This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Thank you very, very much. Uh, really, really good to be here with you. Um, as Howard said, uh, Howard, Naomi, and their three kids, uh, it feels like we've known each other a very, very long time, and I ho- hold them in very high regard, as I hope you do as well. Uh, that one of the nice things about coming to speak at another church is that you get to speak very highly of the leaders of the church, because that doesn't happen very often. Um, but uh, over the years, I've been so impressed with these guys. Uh, any time with them, you will know that they carry in their hearts a probably as strong as anyone I've ever met, a passion for the local church and for the local church to be everything God's called it to be. And with Howard, what you get is um, a, a very powerful, focused, visionary leader who is actually highly motivated by compassion, but his shouting puts you off that (laughs) bit of him but actually if you peel away that come on we're gonna do it underneath it is a massive heart for people love for people love for the poor and I feel very I'm drawn to that I feel I always learn from these guys I I feel bigger by being near them and being their friend and so you guys you've done well in choosing this church they are good leaders and um uh, it really is a privilege to speak into what God's already doing here. And I really hope, uh, I just know as we've chatted over the years that there is so much overlap in what we're trying to do as churches. And I hope that if we are just a little bit further down the road than you, we can help you along the way and hand on some wisdom that we've gained. Um, this is my family. I think I've got a picture. Here they are. You know when you're at a wedding, that's the only time you get a nice photo. We don't dress up like this normally. Uh, so this is Pip, uh, my wife. We've been married about 16 years, something like that. And then from the right, Izzy is 14, Tom is 10, and Ben is 12. And as Howard said, my wife is just finishing midwifery training. Uh, she's a little bit stressed right now, doing a dissertation, but she qualifies in August, and then we're praying for a job in Leeds. There's only 10 going out of a sort of a cohort of about 50 or 60 so we're praying please pray that she gets a job um we planted mosaic uh we just had our 10 year anniversary and really from the start of planting the church we had lots of prophetic words about what we were called to be and the ones that really stuck all were sort of words that involved boats or ships and so uh it was interesting here another boat one today But the three pictures, I guess, that shape what I'm trying to do with my time and my prayer life and uh, uh, all the energy that I've got is the first ship is Mosaic itself. And we're called to build 
uh, a church that uh, does all the things that you guys want to do, love God, love others, love the city, love the poor, love the nations, we want to do all of that. But the second picture is that we're not just called to be a ship, but we're called to be a shipyard, a place that builds other boats. And so we've got a big vision for being a bit of a training center and a place where we raise up leaders and we scatter them to the nations of the world. And the third picture is that of an armada, uh, lots of ships coming together. And so we feel very much we're not called to do this on our own, um, but we feel uh, stronger by being in partnership and friendship with other churches. And so we very much uh, see ourselves uh, sort of aligning with other friends and going on what God's got us for together. And uh, uh, it's out of, I guess, that passion for the local church, the local church really being full of disciple makers, and then us uh, spreading that to other churches is what I'm going to be talking about today. As I was praying this morning, I felt led to John 9, and John 9 is the... uh, uh, the story where the man that's been born blind comes to Jesus and there's a, a little bit of a debate about why he is why he's been born blind but Jesus nevertheless heals him he spits in the ground he makes a little mud pie puts it on his eyes the guy goes off and washes in the pool of Siloam and he suddenly can see and because this guy is known to the community because he spent his life begging the community doesn't know who he is when he can suddenly see. And they say, is this the guy? Is this the guy we used to walk past? Is this the guy born blind? And he has to say, I am that man. I'm the same guy. And I felt God speak to me about that's the sort of change that God wants to do this weekend. Take people from like a, one place to a whole new place, whether it's refueling them on the way, whether it's waking them up, those, that beautiful word that we just had about God kissing us and then us slowly coming awake. Um, I know the reality is most of our issues and sin and stuff that's in our heart does not disappear overnight. But our attitude to whether or not we'll cooperate with God in the change process can. And so that's what I'm after this weekend, is that you'll come home and someone will say, is this, is this so-and-so? Because they look so different, because they're in a different place, they've got a different heart, different attitude to embracing the life of God that we're called to live. And that's my hope for you, as you walk out different in your in the way that you're going to embrace the life God's called you to. So listen, let's get going. I believe the most important thing a church does is making disciples of Jesus. And so if we believe in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. If we believe that is true, the last words of Jesus Jesus are still applicable to every local church, then the true test of obedience for you and I is going and making disciples of all nations. It is the main thing the church does. Amen? Are we on board? It's the main thing we should do. It's our USP. It's like there's no plan B. Plan A for the church is making disciples of all nations. However, it is the thing that most churches are the worst at. It's the thing that we find most confusing. It's the thing we find difficult. And it's slightly ironic. The very thing we should be doing is the very thing we find difficult. I read this quote uh, from a, a guy called Neil Cole. Um, let me read this to you. I found this so provocative. Ultimately, each church will be evaluated by only one thing. It's disciples. 
Your church is only as good as its disciples. It does not matter how good your praise, your preaching, your programs, or your property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumerist, and not moving in the direction of radical obedience, your church is not good. (laughs) Harsh but fair. Disciple-making, I believe, is the most exciting, exhilarating thing that you can sign up for. What what do I mean when I say disciple-making? Well, I'm thinking it's evangelism, it's community, it's spiritual growth, all rolled up into one. So in this little diagram I've got here, it's just the up, in and out of church life. So up, in that it's about connecting with God, it's our worship to God. It's in, it's about our character being formed to that of Jesus, and it's about the community life that we have together, and it's about the out, it's about calling people to reach others locally and globally, up, in and out, that is what the church is called to do, that is disciple making. Disciple making is not about trying to uh, form nicer people, people that are I don't know, less guilty about their sin or disciple making isn't just for going for it Christians like there's a category of Christianity which is those that are really doing the business and then everyone else but rather this is uh, the revolution that Jesus started that applies to everyone in the church this is how we will see the world transformed there is not like this silver bullet that is going to transform the world it comes through local churches doing the up, in and out and doing those things in the power of Jesus and in the name of Jesus. It's, there's nothing else. This is what we are called to do as a church. Do I get a few nods? Yes. Like we're on board. That's, what we're, that's it. There's, there's nothing new under the sun. That is what we are called to do. This is the Great Commission. And so my question this weekend is, do you want to be a disciple maker? And do you want to be a disciple making church? Because if you really want to do that, if you really want to be obedient to the Great Commission, then there is a, 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 a life to embrace, a cost to endure, and there is a freedom to be won. And that's what I really want to call you to this weekend, is for you in your spirits, when you sing, have your way, what you're really saying with all your hearts is, I'm in to this, this whole disciple-making thing, God, that's it. It's when, when the nations know about the name of Jesus, the end will come. And that is your church playing its part in God's mission to transform the nations by you saying yes to disciple-making. So listen, the Bible describes the process of being a disciple, making disciples in loads of different ways. But probably the most sort of pictorial and probably easiest to explain is found in Jeremiah 17. So if you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Jeremiah 17? We've got it on the screen if you don't. And if you've got a pen, I know in the olden days we used to use these, um, but if you've got a pen on you, that would be really helpful because we've got some handouts. And uh, Jeremiah 17 uses the imagery of two trees to describe disciple disciple making. So we've got some pens and we've got some handouts. That's fantastic.
So I want you to look at the picture with the two trees on it. So flip that over and look at the picture of the two trees and also turn to Jeremiah 17. Everyone there? Anyone not got one? Anyone still need a pen? Well done team, good job. Pens over there? Okay, let's get going. Jeremiah 17. So guys, I'm talking about disciple making. And this is a picture of what disciple making is about from Jeremiah using two trees. And this is what he says, verse 5. This is what the Lord says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush or a tree in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the deserts and in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by streams, uh, by, planted by the water that sends its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. Now, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct and according to what their deeds deserved. So these two trees talked about by Jeremiah represent the person who's a disciple of Jesus and therefore producing fruit and one who turns away from God, therefore producing thorns. And both those trees you've got before you have several things in common. And here's where I want you to write on your picture. Both of them have heat. And the heat is represented by the sun. And the heat represents your life and your circumstances and response to them. So you can see that on the screen. You can just copy that down. Heat is your life and your circumstances and response to them. So listen, in Jeremiah 17, both trees feel the heat of the sun and they grow in a very difficult place. Verse 6 and 8 says, it doesn't fear when the heat comes. And this represents our lives and our circumstances with all its blessings, its difficulties and its temptations. I don't know if you realise it, but God uses all of our lives to shape us into disciples of Jesus. Like all the good bits and all the bad bits. And our job is to pay attention to what God is doing. Secondly, you've got the roots. Both trees have roots. And your roots are what shapes your life and the way that you live. So they both have roots that describe what the trees feed on and what actually makes them grow. Verse 5 tells us that the thorn bush had bad roots and draws strength from everyone but God. Whereas the fruit tree in verse 8, remember, it extends its good roots to the stream of water, which is symbolic of Jesus, the Bible, the power of the Spirit. Psalm 1 echoes what Jeremiah 17 says. 
And this is to do with who you hang out with, the life-on-lifeness of discipleship. It's about uh, the spiritual disciplines that we embrace to become the people God's called us to be. And then both trees have a heart. Can you see the hearts in the middle of the tree? And that is the place of transformation. Verse 9 and 10 shows us the more, that more important than behavior is the heart. The heart is where all our behavior comes from. Proverbs 4 verse 23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The heart describes us, the real you, the combination of mind and emotion and spirit and will. That's the heart. It's the steering wheel of our lives. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our hearts desire. So it's the heart that Jesus transforms first and then our sort of our behavior flows from it, which is crucial to understand in disciple making. If you just try and attend to the behavior, you never get the transformation the gospel promises. Jesus goes for the heart every time. So your heart needs to be in a vulnerable place before the Lord. You need to know your identity. You need some emotional health, and we're going to talk about those things. And then you have the thorns. The thorns are your sinful responses. See, the tree in Jeremiah 17, the, the thorns represent all our ungodly responses to life. Thorns only come when your heart doesn't trust Jesus. You can tell whose disciple we are by the fruit or the thorns we produce. And so the combination of not feeding on Jesus and not receiving his power and not letting change touch our hearts results in a certain sort of life. We reap what we sow. And so many of us, we're reaping sin, we're reaping pride, we're reaping no change because we're sowing in the wrong places or not sowing at all. And then you've got the cross. Can you see the cross on the good tree? The cross represents Father, Son and Spirit and salvation. A fruitful tree has Jesus at the centre. We're told in verse 7, the key difference between these two trees is trusting in the Lord. So when we experience relationship with Jesus, draw power from his victory on the cross and obey his commands, we are changed. And then lastly, you've got that, the wonderful fruits, the fruits. That is what a disciple maker looks like. The fruitful tree represents what we're all aiming for. Loving Jesus, becoming more like him, helping others do the same, all results in good works, the fruit of the spirits, Galatians 5, and others changing around us. So I want you to write some words. Where you've written fruit, I want you to write mission on one of those apples. Write mission. Write community on another one of those apples. Write worshipper on one of those apples. Write Christ-likeness on one of those apples. That's the fruit of having Jesus at the heart. And those things, that picture of two trees captures all that I'm trying to talk about in terms of disciple making, being a disciple that makes disciples. And I think this picture, once you get used to it, is actually a helpful way of viewing everyday life. So let me just give you a few really practical ways this picture sort of informs the way that we live. I have got, um, personally, the pastor's anointing for DIY. I don't know what Howard's like, but I missed, uh, Vicar 
training school, I missed the lesson on DIY because I'm really, really bad at it. And anyway, a couple of months ago, we were re- I decided in my day off to redo our downstairs bathroom, known as a cloakroom, I think, if you're posh. But it's a downstairs bathroom to us. And I worked very hard decorating my downstairs bathroom. I stripped all the walls. I took all the tiles off. I sanded down all the wood. Then I primed the wood, painted the wood. I repainted, redid the emulsion on the walls, did the ceiling, refitted the light, painted the lights. I uh, Then we've got like a little, do you know, a basin with a cupboard under I think it's called a vanity unit. A vanity unit and... Yes, I, you're there. Anyway, the, the last thing I needed to do in my downstairs bathroom was to change the handles on this vanity unit. They were from 1970, really ugly. And so I bought two new handles, and they were like the C-shaped ones that you sort of put on the two doors, and I just had little handles. That, so I had a hole drilled already on either door, on each door. And all I needed to do to finish the job in the bathroom was to drill two new holes underneath the existing holes and put the new handles on. So anyway, I measured, got me spirit level out, tape measure, drew around the the handle itself, measured it all, got it all perfect, drilled the hole, then attached the handle and it just wouldn't fit at all. It just, it was in the wrong place. I thought I've got another go, so I did the other side of the door. Again, I, I literally measured it five times to get it perfect, drilled the hole, tried to put the screw in, and again, it wouldn't fit. So I had two big holes, well, four big holes in my vanity unit doors that were completely wrong. So it's just like a pathetic story. But you need to know what I did at that moment, literally for the next 20 minutes. I sat on the toilets, not... I sat on the lid of the toilets... (laughs) for 20 minutes with my head in my hands. At one point, I wailed like a baby. I let out this cry of frustration. And my wife actually came in about 10 minutes into my sulk. And I looked at her and I just said, don't. And she, like, she knew it was a DIY moment with me. And we then had to go in the car and I sat in the car and I was fuming at the steering wheel. And my family started to disciple me out of the mess. So, as I sat on the toilet, here is what went into my mind. This has been me being very honest. I could not help but think to myself, I have ruined the whole project. What will people think when they sit on this toilet and see four holes totally randomly in the wrong place? This is what I always do. At some point, I get it wrong. This is the same mistake I always make, and I've not just made a mistake, but I am a mistake. And it was a window into my heart, and if I'm honest with you, my identity is often wrapped up in my performance and people's opinion of me. And so let's use the diagram. The heat, my circumstances, was messing up the DIY. It was a discipleship moment that God wanted to use to change me. The roots were too many home improvement shows, which make all this stuff look really easy. In the heart was impressing others, two higher standards, and an attitude that says, I can't fail. 
And the thorns that it produced were shame, anger, rage, frustration, wanting to give up, and unfriendliness with my family. If I had Jesus really ruling and reigning in my heart, my identity would not be based in my DIY abilities, but in who I am in Christ. And the fruit would have been perspective, patience, an ability to laugh at myself. Um, we moved into a new house about nine months ago, and the neighbours in the joining house are, are really not very nice. They're a very hurting couple, and hurting people tend to hurt people. And for some reason, they've taken a real dislike to us. They shout at us, they scream at us, they watch us, they stare at us. It's a very weird dynamic. And um, over the last nine months, um, Pip and I have been sort of in a bit of a process in learning how to deal with them. And if you've ever had bad neighbours, you know that it's a horrible feeling. As soon as you sort of enter the street, you're suddenly aware, are they there? And what will they have done? And it makes home a tough place to be. And what it's done is that it's revealed to me how little compassion I have for hurting people. And it's also shown me, when Jesus says, love your enemies, like, it's really impossible to do that. Like, I don't know if I've had proper enemies before, now. And, I mean, what a privileged life to, to be able to say that. But I get on with most people really well. And these were people that I've just not been able to break through at all. So listen, what's going on? The heat in my life is nasty neighbours. The roots, I guess, if I, again, if I'm honest, are no one's got the right to treat me like this, so I feel quite angry a lot of the time. In my heart, is revenge. I cannot tell you some of the things that I've wanted to do to my neighbours. Like, violence really is quite close to the surface. And so, they are the thorns that it's produced, is hatred and violence. I mean, it's, it's awful, but that's exactly what's happened. And But if Jesus was ruling and reigning, I would understand the fact that he loved me while I was still an enemy. And therefore, I can love my enemies. And the fruit would be Christ-likeness. It would be a prayerfulness. It would be compassion rather than what's going on. You see, what I like about these two trees is that a fruitful tree represents our true nature. It's our inheritance. It's our destiny in Jesus to be a fruitful tree. If you trust Jesus, you are a fruitful tree. But the unfruitful tree represents the reality of our lives. And the process of discipleship is becoming what God has already made you to be. You are a fruitful tree. And the more mature you get, the more you cooperate with your identity in Jesus, a fruitful tree. I like it that it shows you that discipleship is not really about knowing stuff about God, but it's, it, discipleship only happens when you allow it to change your heart. We all know lots of people that know lots about the Bible, but really are not very godly. I like it that it shows you you can't change yourself, but rather God the Father, the Son and the Spirit have to be involved, and you have to do the work as well. 
It's about your roots. You, you're in charge of your roots and the way you handle the heat. But at the same time, the change only comes when the cross is at work on your heart. And God chooses to work like that. And I like it that it shows you where change happens. Presenting issues are the thorns, but the need is to find out what's going on in your heart. I like it that it shows you that Christianity is not about you becoming a nicer sort of person. It's not about you navel-gazing and analysing all your issues and all your stuff, because we've all got loads of stuff. But it's about a fruitful life that leads to mission and leads to community and leads to Christ-likeness. It leads to serving the poor. It leads to going to the nations. If we truly get this stuff right, the overflow has to be you become a disciple maker. And that's really important. Disciple making is not really about a plan. Listen, if you're a disciple, you will make disciples. You will be a fruitful tree. So the choice is which tree do you want to be? And the hope in all of this is disciple making in the church should lead to an orchard of fruit trees. It should lead to the church being an orchard of healthy, fruitful trees, each tree maturing and producing fruit and reproducing and growing new fruitful trees. And so over the weekend, uh, I've got f- uh, four talks, including this one. We are going to simply go through all the different elements of these, this picture. We're going to look at the heat, we're going to look at the heart, we're going to look at our roots, we're going to look at Jesus, we're going to look at the thorns, and we're going to look at the fruit. But this first session, what I want to do in the remaining time is just to help you see what may be stopping you from saying yes to the change that God wants to do in your lives. You see, in John 8, we're told that Jesus um, uh, very boldly claimed that the truth would set us free and that we will be led into freedom But all of us have things in our lives that stop us enjoying the freedom, that stop us becoming the disciples God wants us to be. And I want to call you in this first session to see more clearly the things that might be your hindrances or barriers to saying yes. So it's all very well saying yes, but there's always stuff in our hearts that then stops us coming good on what we promised to God. So I just want to spend the rest of the time talking about those things. And I want to illustrate it like this. Over the years, however old you are in the room, all of us over the years accumulate bags. We all do. Bags of disappointment or bags of discouragement or bags of hurt or bags of pain, bags of shame. We all have bags. Everyone in the room has bags. We just can't see them. And these bags, they weigh us down and they stop us being all that God's called us to be. They strangle the life out out of us and they slow us down. And if you try and do anything for God with these bags, you will always find it exhausting and you will find that you try and go for something and then fail. Or you will be, you know, someone will prophesy and there'll be a rise of faith and then you'll find it disappear really quickly. And every time you try and make a decision when you've got these bags around you, you find that the decision gets choked. It's very difficult to obey what God says because the bags speak more loudly than the voice of God. 
And it's very difficult to ever emerge into a healthy place because these bags of junk just weigh us down. And you know what? Every time we just do life, whether it's we try and build friendships or we try and build a family or we try and find our place in church life, because we've all got these bags, when we try and get close to others, we bump up against their bags and it stops us getting really that close to one another. And it keeps people at arm's length because the the bags just stop us connecting. And what's fascinating is a major part of my Christian life. I got converted at 14 from a non-Christian family, just a beautiful family of a friend at school, loved on me. Uh, I loved being spending time with their family and I discovered they were Christians. They invited me to a Christian camp at 14, gave my life to Jesus, but then struggled struggled to the age of 21 and I didn't realize it but I had more bags than this I had a lot of bags but you know if you were to ask me like about my life and how I'm doing as a Christian between 14 and 21 I would have just said I'm fine I was completely ignorant of what God was doing and you know there's some of you here the reality is it's been a long time since you've remembered the fact that you've got bags around you Or perhaps you've never ever realised that that is the reality of your life. You know, if you'd asked me some simple questions like, what is God saying to you at the moment? Or how is God changing you? I would have no idea. This diagram that I just put up would make no sense. Because it's... The Christianity is just about doing the basics. It's about doing what we're told to do. And then you crack on with life. And that's how I lived. Listen, this weekend is not about me like finding what bags you've got and unzipping them and looking inside. I'm not like interested at all. <laughs> I've got enough. <laughs> I've got enough. I don't need your stuff. So it's, your, it's private. It's yours. But listen, don't be the person who leaves the weekend thinking, I dealt with my bags in the past. Because that phrase is a way of covering over weakness. You know, God doesn't deal with our issues by zapping them and making them go away. But rather, he knows that maturity is, is to do with dependence on him. And so he lets us in life carry a certain amount of weakness because it forces us into that place of dependence. If he dealt with everything at the start, we wouldn't need him. And so if you're the sort of person that says, yeah, I used to struggle with this, but I don't anymore, or I dealt with that, or I confessed it once, or whatever, and it's done in the past, Jesus forgiven me, I'm free. There's a certain sense in which it's good to declare that truth, but you're in unreality about where you're actually at in life. You've still got the bag that God wants to deal with. You know, uh, if you ever check in at the airports, you know, if you fly cheap, you've only got one bag you can check in. And you sometimes see people that have arrived with too much weight in their bag and they're trying to get all the stuff out. I just wonder for you, you are not able to go where God wants to get you because you're carrying too much baggage. That you need to sort of take some things out of the bag. So my hope is this weekend you'll get to do that. Is there a plane you're going to miss because of the bags you're carrying? Some of you may not even realise you have more thorns than fruit in your life. And it's because of your bags of hurt and rejection 
and shame. Now listen, um, 14 to 21, ignorance was my deal. I just had no idea. From 21 through to about 25, what I perfected was the art of coping. I suddenly was aware that there were some huge fault lines in my life and I didn't quite know what to do. And so I projected an image to others that made it look like I was okay. And coping is what we do when we try and change, but we experience difficulty, but we're still in an environment where we're we're told to be like Jesus and told to be Christ-like. So coping happens when we hide behind the mask of godliness. Coping is what happens when we're in a community like this where we know certain behaviour is expected and therefore we just adjust our outward behaviour to conform, but on the inside we're not the people God wants us to be. So for me, it was one of my bags was my body image, what I look like. And so in the way that I coped with what I physically looked like was that I'd avoid all instances of revealing flesh. So I'd avoid going swimming, or if I played sports and someone said, let's play skins and shirts, I would run a mile, you know, or go in goal or something. I would avoid all situations that involve me having to deal with the fact that I was unhappy in my own skin. So I got very good at coping. So I looked absolutely fine on the outside, but on the inside, I was hugely struggling. I was also a massive cynic. And I was a cynic because I'd been hugely rejected in my past and I found a really safe way to protect my heart was to keep everyone away from me. And so I was massively cynical about most things and particularly in the church. You know, coping, as I said, is hiding behind the mask of godliness. If you had met me at that age, you'd have thought, this is a nice lad. You'd have thought, he's a good guy with leadership potential. But so much of it was to do with me masking and pretending. You know, I I was discipling a guy just a while back and he was about to do a best man speech. And he said to me, oh Matt, you know, I really want to grow my ability to speak uh, in front of people, but I'm quite scared of what people think. So what I've done is I've memorised my best man speech so I can get it perfect. And I said, well, that's interesting. And he said, why is that? And I said, well, can you see that's totally coping with the issue? You are fearful of what people think of you, so you have found a way to look like you're not scared and that you're really good at public speaking, but actually you're petrified on the inside. And so by masking the fear with a good performance, he's just coping in life. He's not experiencing the transformation that Jesus promises in the heart. Does this make sense? Is this ringing any bells? So listen, coping helps us deal with the shame we all feel. Okay, Shame happens when we have all have an image of ourselves we want to be. The sort of the godly person or whatever it is that we have in our minds. And then we have the real us. The gap between your imaginary self and your real self is often quite big. And that leads to shame. We are ashamed of who we really are. That's why we hide. That's why we cope. We don't want others to see the reality. If you only knew what I was really like, that's the gap. And we feel shame because of that. And coping is a way of dealing with the shame. 
And we do what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they sinned. They, they hid from God. He said, where are you, Adam? Coping is looking respectable, but isn't the transformation promised. We have been told we are new creations. I have a high expectation of what the gospel can do. And then lastly, if it's not ignorance, if it's not coping, let me talk about you. The, probably the bag that I've come across the most. It's a really heavy bag, and it's the bag of fear. It's a big weight, because fear, fear is about being scared that people will see you and judge you and reject you and hurt you. Loads of us have a fear of being weak and broken before others. Loads of us have a fear that if we open up, people will just abuse us and hurt us. You know, I was sinning all the time I was under fear by believing the lie that something or someone was more glorious and more important than God. You know, Solomon, the wisest king of Israel, saw it a mile off. Proverbs 29, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So how do you know you are thinking others or other things are more glorious than God? Let me give you some really practical ways which you can tell you've got a bag of fear in your life. Do you suffer from comparison? Do you compare everything to others? Your ministry, your kids your quiet times, your hours of service, the state of your house, your body shape, your knowledge, your make of watch, the amount of hair you have, the type of job, your essay results, your Facebook friends, your retweets, whatever it is, do you just compare all the time? Do you give in to peer pressure? Peer pressure is a euphemism for fear of man. It's a desire to conform, to wear the right things, to do the right things and say the right things. Are you easily embarrassed? If you're easily embarrassed, fear is often the root. Are you apathetic? Are you someone that has lots of half-finished projects? You see, if you're apathetic, you're often afraid of making mistakes because they will make you look bad in other people's eyes. You know, when I was uh, uh, growing up, Fear took a hold on my life and it did a weird thing. It basically made me super apathetic, so I just didn't do loads of things. But on the inside, I thought if I tried, I would be the best at it. And I had this weird imaginary world that I did nothing, but I thought if I did something, it would be amazing. I am messed up, aren't I? And Howard is probably as well. I would avoid certain people in certain situations because it would make me vulnerable, it made me look bad, I wouldn't know what to say, it was potentially exposing. Um, perhaps you're someone that needs something from your spouse. Is your world turned upside down if you argue? Do you need your spouses to listen to you, respect you? Because fear is probably at the heart of that. Is the spouse the one that you really fear and therefore the one that controls you? Do you always feel like you're faking it? Do you always feel like you're constantly worried that you'll get exposed as an imposter? And there used to be a programme on TV called Keeping Up Appearances with Hyacinth Bouquet, for those of us that are old enough to remember that. And that's your life, that you keep up appearances. Two more. Are you vain? You're never without your makeup. Do you constantly check your reflection in a window or mirrors? 
you never go swimming? Do you can't, can you not answer the door if you've just woken up for fear of someone seeing you with your hair messed up? Do you protect an image of yourself that you present to others? I'll tell you, fear is at the heart of that. Yeah. I know you're a manipulative person. Like, do you control how people perceive you? You know, sometimes I have these thoughts of if I say this and if I do that and if I wear that and if I do that, then people will think this of me. I'm manipulating the situation. Listen, Jesus only carries one bag. He only carries one bag. And it's light, it's easy, and it's a life-giving bag. He's designed it so that we can wear it with him. And he tells us in Hebrews 12 to throw off everything that hinders. And he tells us in Matthew 11 to carry or take up his bag or his yoke that is easy and light. And listen, just taking one bag off is amazing. Just one bag. 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That word cast means to throw violently. Do you know you're at the airport? Think of the way they treat your luggage. That is throwing violently. And Jesus says that we're to come to him, we're to cast off our anxieties. But you know what? Getting to take your bags off and cast them at the foot of the cross is so much of what the gospel's about. Galatians 5 says, It is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by, again by the yoke of slavery. Part of, be, part of being a disciple maker is dealing with the bags. And these bags produce horrible fruits, sorry, thorns in our lives. And I'm going to try and show you over the weekend how you can take these bags off. So I'm going to finish with just asking you this. What are your bags? I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. And it might be that you draw a blank at this moment. And if you do, then let me help you. Your bag is ignorance. It's just not knowing. Some of you immediately want to sort of defend yourself and say, it's not that bad, or I dealt with these things. Listen, your bag is probably coping. And then others of you, this is a a pretty scary moment. And uh, it may be fear is your thing. But Jesus offers us a different sort of bag. So why don't you just take a moment and just think of the things that you want him to deal with and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray for real courage in the room to to allow you to come and show us the things that stop us from being obedient and pull us away from you and from others. 
And I, I pray, God, that there'd be lots of permission to be vulnerable here. And it'd be okay to not be okay. I pray for all the coping mechanisms to start to be pulled down. And I pray, Jesus, um, you would welcome us in our vulnerable place. Thank you that a broken and contrite heart you do not or will not despise. Thank you that you long to gather us like a mother hen gathers her chicks. You are everything for us. And we come with our bags and we, we, we're amazed that you love us in our mess. But you do want to set us free. And I pray for freedom this weekend. I pray dismantle every obstacle that hinders us. And I pray, Lord, once again, we'd run with perseverance the race that you have marked out for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.